Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music technologist David Frangioni. But first of all, what do you think is the most musical city in the world? Well, The Guardian did a study, and they looked at cities all over the world, from Mumbai, India, to Lagos, Nigeria, Denver, Austin, Taipei, Hong Kong, New Orleans, Memphis, Berlin, Nashville, and they looked at the number of performances that occur in the city per year. I think you'll be surprised at some of the ones that were included at the top of the list. So, first of all, number one by a large margin is Melbourne, Australia. Who would have thought? Now, I was just in Australia um, a few months ago, and I was only in Sydney, and everyone there told me, you have to go to Melbourne because that's where the music business is happening. And I didn't make it. Hopefully, next time I go, I will. But they all told me what a great music scene it is. And it must be because they had over 73,000 musical performances last year alone in Melbourne, Australia. Pretty amazing, huh? Second is New York City. And of course, that's probably expected to be on the list. That's only at 36,000. That's still a huge number of performances, but it's about half of what Melbourne does. Next comes Paris at 31,000. And then following that is London at 23,000. So these are the top four musical cities in the world. Most are not surprising, but Melbourne at the top certainly is. So this is one of those things where you look at it and you think, am I in the right city? (laughs) If you're a musician, you have to look at yourself and wonder, wait a second, there's a lot more going on in other places than I'm at. And especially like if you live in Nashville or Austin or New Orleans, where they have flourishing, wonderful music communities, but still don't touch any of these top four here. You have to think, well, wait a second, am I in the right place? And of course, we can make music anywhere. And especially if we're trying to make music for other people, it doesn't really matter where we're at. But if we want to go out and we want to play, there are certainly certain places all over the world that are better than others. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's an interesting development. Netflix is upping its audio quality. Now, it's not across the board. It's only for devices that reproduce 5.1 or Dolby Atmos. The reason why it's only those is they did a study and they found out that most of the devices that can support those particular formats will actually support better sound as well. So now, Netflix has upped the bit rate on 5.1 from 192 kilobits per second all the way up to 640. And for Dolby Atmos, from 448 kilobits per second to 768 kilobits per second. And on top of that, now they're using adaptive bit rates as opposed to a constant bit rate, 
which basically means that the audio is going to be better. As the audio requires a higher bit rate, then it gives it the higher bit rate. And for instance, if there's nothing happening, if there's silence, then it goes to a lower bit rate. They've been doing this for years already with video, and it certainly helps the picture a lot. But now they're actually turning their eyes to audio quality as well. I think we're going to start to see this happen across the board. And already in the last couple of weeks, it's leaked that Amazon is preparing a high-resolution tier. My prediction is this might finally be the year when everybody steps it up. And I'm talking about streaming services across the board. And we're going to see with music services, especially if Amazon kicks this off. Really, it shouldn't take Apple Music much to get into this because they've been collecting high-res masters for six years now. So it shouldn't take much at all. And you would think that if that would happen, that would push Spotify over the edge as well. So I think we're on the cusp of some really great audio. Now, if only we get better reproduction systems, and that's what's been lacking. As we live in this era of audio convenience, one of the things that's become very convenient is our audio playback systems. They become smaller, more compact. That's great on one hand because they're easy to take around, but it's bad fidelity-wise. Once upon a time, everybody had great stereos at home, and that was one of the things that you went out of your way to get. It was one of the first things, especially if you're a college student. Every dorm room had a great stereo, and you can't say that now. As a matter of fact, there's very few homes that have great stereos anymore, but now as we see the availability of better audio actually coming to the fore, I think we'll start to see better playback systems as well. And that can only be good for everybody that's in the audio and the music creation business. My guest today is David Frangioni, who started his music career as a drummer, but soon became a pioneer in MIDI technology. This led him into the studio as an engineer and producer for dozens of top artists, including The Stones, Ringo Starr, Aerosmith, Elton John, Sting, Journey, Styx, Kiss, Phil Collins, Ozzy Osbourne, and many more. David is also the founder of Audio One, one of the most successful and awarded AV firms in the U.S., as well as multimedia design, installation, and content company Frangioni Media. Audio One specializes in super sophisticated home automation, and the company has built hundreds of technology, sound, and automation installations to date. He's also an author with three books to his credit, and he's extremely active in a variety of charitable foundations. In the interview, we talked about David getting his start in the studio with Aerosmith, why credits are so important, the challenges of high-end home automation, writing books about Clint Eastwood and vintage drums, and much more. I spoke with David via Skype from his home in Florida. Let's go back into the beginning and talk about how you got started in the business. I know you have a wide variety of credits and things that you do, and I want to touch on all of them, but let's go back to the beginning. Well, it started as at two years old as a drummer. And um, I it turned out that around the same time that I found the drums, I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye. And so my right eye had to be removed. And there was a lot of trauma around that. And, and drumming and music really became a refuge for me. I started taking formal lessons in elementary school. And then at age eight, at Lexington Music Center, I'm from Boston. Mm -hmm. And then the drums just progressed and I was really on a pursuit to, in my mind, be the world's greatest drummer and in my practice habits and studied with some amazing drummers like Alan Dawson and Joe Morello and 
Louis Belson and um, Rod Morgenstein. And in the middle of the pursuit and wanting to, you know, immerse myself and, and be a drummer, and I was playing a lot of gigs, I found technology. And I was really in pursuit of being a more complete drummer because now we're in the mid 80s and technology was very new to all of music, especially drumming. And in the pursuit of, of wanting to be a complete drummer, understand drum machines, understand triggering and all these different things that apply to the drums, I fell in love with technology and found that I loved it combined with music as much or more than I did being a drummer. And I also liked the versatility of it and the creativity of it because as a drummer, you can play with a band uh, maybe you're lucky enough to break into the studio world, but even that's changed so dramatically. But as a music technologist, it's been the same since day one through now. There's so many amazing artists that uh, need your and want your input and uh, and and to work with you that it was just a much wider creative palette, and uh, I never looked back. So when you got into technology, what was that specifically then that you get into? It was MIDI technology. So I ended up starting a MIDI consulting business around 17 years old, roughly. A, I can't give you a rigorous age, but it was in that time frame. And I had a toll-free number, 1-800-345-MIDI. And I was consulting and doing local New England consulting, a gentleman named Gene Jolly, who's at QSC now. He was at Guitar Center. He's been a mentor of mine. And he was at EU Wurlitzer in the 80s and really gave me one of my first big breaks in giving me the support of being EU Wurlitzer's in-house MIDI consultant, which I didn't work for Wurlitzer, but he let me put my signs up uh, promoting my consulting business and offer them to his clients. And it was really effective in helping me build a consulting business and learn a tremendous amount because every single person that hired me was uh, using different equipment. So I learned, you know, virtually every piece of equipment out there at the time. And uh, it was just a great start. So how did you get to Aerosmith from there? Well, uh, Tom Hamilton from Aerosmith initially contacted me to help him with a writing rig that he had that was MIDI-based. It was actually a hybrid of, of an analog A-track with, um, with MIDI. And uh, from there, he liked the work that we were doing and the way that I was helping him, and he thought that I knew what I was doing, so he gave me an introduction to the band. And... Um, as soon as I met Steven Tyler and we started working together, like literally minute one, we just clicked. And as you fast forward from the time that I initially met Tom and then Steven and the band uh, through now, you know, I ended up through the 90s being their in-house engineer, kind of one-man show during all their writing sessions and anything they needed technologically, which was a lot. You know, we were building studios and we were... Um, you know, doing all the writing for all the albums and, you know, any edits they needed and backline stuff. And it was, you know, as you would imagine, the band's quite busy. So there were a lot of things to do all the time, audio wise. And, um, you know, I ended up working on all the records from the pump tour until just push play. And uh, then they took a hiatus, of course, 
and really have only made two records since then. Uh, so it was really the heavy lifting of their resurgence. And um, it was an incredible, incredible time. So many accolades, memories, uh, so much education in that on so many levels. And uh, very grateful for Aerosmith. And, and to this day, they're still friends of mine and we'll still do projects here and there. And um, an amazing band. And from there, I guess that gave you the street cred, so to speak, to work with the Stones and Ozzy and Ringo and everybody else, I guess, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it all builds up. You still have to deliver the goods, as you know. So having credits is, is, is huge because it allows somebody that doesn't know you to get an instant snapshot of what you've done and who else has trusted you and ideally has been happy with the work you've done. So credits are, are extremely important in our business, as you know. But I've, I earned them all. You know, I mean, I, I always went in and over-delivered and worked really hard, sacrificed tremendously, did, you know, more than was asked at all times and no days off. And just, you know, really built it up, you know, one project at a time. How did Audio One come about? Well, Audio One started because it was clear to me after things were really rolling in the early 90s that the amount of people that needed my services outnumbered me by a significant number to the point where I had to find a way to essentially scale myself and uh, find a way to you know, meet clients' needs and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and not physically be in 10 places at one time. So I started Audio One as a company to do that. Initially, we started out just on the recording studio pro side. And I've always been heavily involved behind the scenes with um, sound designer, sound tools, and then, of course, Pro Tools. So when Pro Tools became a solution that a whole an entire studio could be based around that was a really prolific moment in in audio one's career because that really was our sweet spot which taking an all digital technological studio and building a turnkey and there were hundreds and hundreds of them that needed to be built that we were able to to do um and at the same time home theater and home automation was something I've always been passionate about. And I waited until I personally felt that from my own home system and my own experience, I waited until I felt that it was ready for prime time. I don't ever want a client of mine, audio ones or, or otherwise to be uh, a Guinea pig on, you know, there, there's the science projects are for me, not for my clients. So uh, home theater and home automation just weren't ready for most of the nineties, you know, great ideas and, and great companies, but just not ready for prime time. And eventually though, we got enough requests and the technology started to catch up with what I felt was reliable solutions. And so we added that. So audio one grew by year 2000 to recording studios of all types to home automation systems and home theaters. And that still to this day is what we do. I could see how this all fits together, but it is somewhat of a stretch to go from recording studios and working with pros to all of a sudden doing home automation. 
I mean, there's a technological symbiosis there that, that I can see, but it's a different mindset and, and different audiences, so to speak. Well, that's a, it's a great point. And in most cases it is, but in this case, I was really specific as to the lane that we were traveling in. So we are just very, very high end. We're doing huge projects, you know, that have, that are usually, you know, many thousands of square foot condos or in, in standalone single family residences, they would be called estates. So they're really large projects. Um, and so that gives it a lot more similarity to the pro world. If you think about home automation or home theater on a broad spectrum, then it's, it's, you're right, it's a stretch. But because we define the lane at the same level of playback and of, um, of technical uh, proficiency as we did with our studio business, those types of clients that we're building what you'd call reference quality home theaters or doing an automation system that was very, very sophisticated. It has a, at that point, it starts to have a lot in common with the pro world. Um, I became a Crestron certified programmer early on because I needed to really understand what was going on and and know it myself and, and you know, see what that symbiosis really was and how it could apply. Just took a very learned and careful approach to it. And, um, you know, it ended up being that a lot of our clients would have us do, um, you know, even two of the three things that we did. So we'd have a client say, all right, well, I'd like a theater and I'd like an automation system or I'd like a recording studio and I'd like a theater and, you know, et cetera. So I think we're very unique. I've been told that we're the only company that, that does what we do in the manner that we do it. But um, for us, it's, you know, it does work. Now I've been told, and I don't know because I don't touch your particular world so often, but I've been told that uh, home theaters are, I don't want to use the word passe, but they're not as hot as they once were. Is that true? You know, it's it was true. It cycles. So there was a period where dedicated theater rooms with the big cushy theater chairs were the rage. And then that did turn into more media lifestyle rooms. So the, the furniture would be a lot different. and Maybe the display wouldn't be front projection at that point. It might be a very large flat screen or, or maybe not. And now it's cycling back to where people are dedicating space again for a theater. Um, it goes in cycles. And part of that is the technology that's available. You know, there was a long time where you couldn't get a flat screen big enough to put in a, in a decent sized room that really gave you any kind of theatrical experience. There were also times where front projection didn't have enough light output that if you had a big room, um, then you would you know, you, you would have to have it pitch black. And so that's not how a lot of people live and, and want to watch movies. So it's, it's a combination of, you know, taking the lifestyles that, um, people have and, and want, uh, for their entertainment and, and viewing purposes and combining it with the best that's available for that. How does streaming fit into all this? I say that in the fact that it's so big these days, so many people rely on it for music acquisition, so to speak. But home theater, I'm wondering if there's a place for that. Yes and no. So streaming was, you know, streaming killed the hi-fi business. 
you know, that put one of its last nails in that coffin, which is really too bad to say the least. As I know you and I are so passionate about audio and have been our entire lives. You know, we've literally dedicated our lives to audio and uh, and, and the corresponding technology. So streaming is kind of disappointing in that regard. But it, it factors into all of the home automation systems. It doesn't have a whole lot of place in theater and, and studios necessarily. I mean, we'll make uh, an allowance for the capability to listen to streaming. But, you know, because it's entirely really a consumer-based format where people enjoy streaming if it's not in their car and it's at their home, it's listening it as background music. And, um, and so we have in the automation systems, the ability to turn multiple rooms on uh, and listen, you know, either stream directly from the source, you know, either choose Spotify or Pandora or whatever, or go through an airplay connection and stream and, uh, and basically just enjoy whatever you want. The, the interesting thing is when people hear that, they're like, wow, that sounds about as technologically impressive as a Chevrolet car. It's like, well, it is until you realize that when somebody's in a 20,000 square foot space with 40 rooms and five different people listening to all their own music and a, an absolutely zero tolerance that something doesn't work or isn't easy to do inside of three seconds or less, it really is very technologically challenging and does require high level of understanding and implementation. Now, I don't know very much about home automation, but the one thing that I suspect is true is that it all changed with voice activation, and that's relatively new in the last few years. Am I right on that? Yes, and it's still being implemented. There's a couple of really good solutions for voice activation. Again, when you're talking about home automation, it's as vast as, as the word music, so if we're really, if somebody says, you know, what's the best music ever, you know, you could start by saying rock and then you could start by saying, well, heavy metal. And then you could, then you could go, well, is it heavy metal now? Or is it heavy metal all time? Or is it heavy metal in the sixties? Like you really have to drill down to a, a specific lane to really get to the bottom of it. And home automation starts at the, at the beginning of its offerings of what you call DIY, do it yourself where someone spends a few hundred dollars and installs whatever they want in their house. And from their iPhone, they turn a couple of lights on and listen to their Sonos and it's cool. Um, but it goes up to millions and millions of dollars in very large spaces with extraordinarily complex backend implementation where from a single user interface screen, you're adjusting and selecting from many zones of air conditioning, lights, shades, audio, video, security, uh, pool control, et cetera, et cetera. So when you take voice control and you leave the do-it-yourself bottom end of the spectrum, where in that world, you're just basically giving one command and saying, you know, turn on the lights or turn off the sound. When you're in a large space with a lot of zones and a lot of things happening, the voice control needs to be a lot more worked out. And so there's a system called Josh AI, which you might have heard of, that's starting to really come on strong, that is made entirely for the higher end of the spectrum where you can actually say, hey, Josh, open the garage door, turn off the sound in bedroom two, turn on the landscape lights, and uh, turn on the television in the master bedroom. And it'll actually understand and do it 
regardless of the size of the space and the complexity. So that's where voice control is going. And uh, we're starting to see it. It's a little early days at the high end, but uh, it's undoubtedly going to be a standard requirement uh, as we go forward. Do you have trouble interfacing with other contractors? Because I would imagine you'd have to closely to pull some of this stuff off. Well, absolutely. The home automation world especially is uh, very complex in not only the contractors, but all of the scope. You have just lighting alone. You have a lot of times a lighting designer, an electrician, a general contractor, a fixtures provider, which is none of the people I just mentioned, like another person providing fixtures. Oftentimes in the LED world, you have a, a driver provider separate from the fixture that's supposed to be compatible with the fixture and vice versa. And then you have the programming and then you have all the integration. So, you know, I just mentioned like six or seven unique people and they could be in all different parts of the world that they were hired from. And uh, it gets it can be very complex. It's a it really there's really a lot to learn in that business and to really understand how to communicate and how to track what you're doing. And and you bring up a great point because ideally you just want to be great at what you do. You don't want to have to be a politician and you don't want to have to be a full time project manager trying to figure out you know who dropped the ball last and where and why and how much it costs and when they're going to fix it and if they're going to fix it. You just want to do what you do uh, and do it great and focus on it and put your energy in that, and your resources. But as you said, it doesn't work that way in the um, in the automation business, especially. It's somewhat true in studio and theater, but much less so. In the automation world, uh, there's a lot of trades and a lot of people you're interfacing with. And uh, it's a whole nother skill set. Boy, it sounds like it sounds very complex. Then again, if you come from the music world, you're prepared for a lot of that because there's the political part that you're going through. If you're going to be successful in the business, you, you kind of know that. And on any kind of major level, you're dealing with a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. So I guess that prepares you perfectly for that. Absolutely. You know, everything that I've done in my career and that I've chosen to make a part of my my passion and and uh, and and career path has been connected in some way and has helped me apply what I've learned to the next project. Even if one's pro and one's consumer, and then the next one is making a record, um, you know, you just keep learning. Yeah. Yeah. Let's switch gears for a second and talk about your books. You have three, right? Yes. Two Clint Eastwood icons, the, the original one in 09 Clint Eastwood, Icon Revised and Expanded Edition in 2018, and Crash World Greatest Drum Kits, also in 2018. Okay, let's start with Clint first. What possessed you to write a book about Clint Eastwood? I've been a huge fan of his films for my whole life, and I ended up around my teens collecting his, starting to collect his movie memorabilia, posters and lobby cards and all original stuff from his films. And I was just fascinated by it. I just thought it was really cool. And it turns out that there's a collecting community for all of that stuff. And so that actually has value. You're not just buying something because you think it's cool. And, you know, it's basically, you know, you just spent the money and then it's gone. Like it actually served as somewhat of an investment as well because there is a collector's community for it. 
So I just built it up over the years. I've always been kind of a collector person, uh, started with baseball cards and then went to the Clint Eastwood stuff and just, you know, I collect some original movie props and I just have the collector gene. And at a certain point I felt like I needed to share the collection and wanted to share the collection as opposed to just keep acquiring and having it be me. And if I ever get three friends, you know, they can see it too. And I just thought, you know, this needs to be shared. This needs to go out to the world. I'll give a portion of the proceeds to charity. Um, and so when I went and put my idea together, never having written a book or had anything to do with the publishing of a book, I put a mock, I just thought naturally, all right, I'll put a mock chapter together. I'll put a table of contents, I'll put a cover. And, you know, I'll tell the story of what I want this book to be about and then find a publisher. So, because I always had big aspirations for it. I didn't want to self-publish or, or take a more kind of grassroots approach. I wanted to really get a, a real book deal. So I went out and I started pounding the pavement a little bit. And the first thing that I was told was the only way you're really going to get what you want in a real publisher is you got to get Clint Eastwood behind this. And I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty tough. But lo and behold, it's a long story that we won't, you know, belabor the listeners to hear. But I actually did get to Clint, and he actually did get behind the book and uh, and really was integral in, in its content and how well it came out. And, um, and, you know, and so I got published by Insight Editions, of course, which happened after Clint was on board. And uh, the books have done really well, and and they're the you know just like we crashed the world's greatest drum kits. In all three cases, the books represent what I would want to read and what I would want to go to on my coffee table as a fan of those genres and that style. And that's why in both cases, the two Clint's and the Crash book, you can thumb through the pages, look at the photos, and really enjoy it. Or you can drill in and you can read all of the fine print and read it like a more traditional book. And it's just a really fun experience. And it's the book that I would want as a Clint Eastwood movie collector and as a drum kit fan. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I find it very interesting. There's tons of books on vintage guitars, vintage instruments, stringed instruments in general. I don't recall one that I know of on drum kits, but it's fascinating because it's one of those things where when you sit down and think about it, it's, well, it's a heartbeat of a song and (laughs) maybe we should know more about what's, what's actually driving it. So that's very cool. Well, thank you. Um, you know, there were actually a couple of books I found out there that did, uh, focus on drum sets, but the reason that, you know, you've brought up that there aren't any is because in both cases, the two that I can think of, one was all black and white and the other one was mostly text. So you'd like go through the book and there'd be all this talking and and text about the, um, you know, the drum kit and then there'd be a couple of pictures. So it was really kind of drum kit light on the the visual. Um, And so neither of them really were considered any kind of standards and drum kit books. Um, and so I set out to make that book and I appreciate your, um, 
you know, your support of it because it's really gotten the same praise across the board. People are just loving it and really feeling like it's unique. Um, and, and it is as far as I know, you know, it's, first of all, it's almost impossible to get the kits to be shot number one and not use just photos off of a stage that a photographer had from his archive, but actually set them up and photograph them. Um, and then have Mark Weiss, a world famous rock photographer, do the photography. And then on top of that, have all the perspectives of the kit. You know, we're above the kit, we're behind the kit, we're in front of the kit, we're closed up, uh, you know, shots on, uh, you know, different parts of the artwork on the kits that no one's ever seen before in that detail. So it's a unique perspective, all in celebration of what I consider, you know, over 50 of the coolest drum kits that have ever been made. And I just felt that, you know, my whole philosophy behind this was preserve the kits, like take what I've been able to be successful in as a career and channel that into this amazing drum collection and then share it with people. Um, it's really almost an obsession, but it's one that I was very intent on sharing and doing something that was, you know, global and that had legacy to it and not just for my own private use, which just seemed like not, you know, not anything that I was really inspired by. But when I looked at it from the perspective of the world and all the drummers out there and potential drummers that'll see it and get excited, then it made sense. What was the most difficult one to get? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, There would be a few in that category, but I would probably say the Carl Palmer stainless steel kit, which is the focus of the book for me and the reason I put it on the cover Um, I had been dreaming about that kit since I first heard about it in the mid seventies. And, uh, it was like a dream. And the fact that Ringo bought it after Carl retired the kit, and then I worked with Ringo and then he wouldn't sell it. And then he ended up selling it. And then I ended up winning it at his auction. It's just like, we could literally make a movie on that kit. So I would put that as at the top of the list. Wow. Wow. Okay. Is there one thing that you found in common with all the kits? That they were all uniquely connected to the drummer. That every kit had the drummer's personality or the artist that the drummer was playing for his personality. And that you could see there was a tremendous amount of thought that went into it. There really wasn't one kit. Even if you look at Buddy Rich's kit, which is just a five-piece Slingerland kit, um, but it's Buddy Rich's, and it, you know, and the, his, the way he set it up, and the sound that he got out of it, and the world's greatest drummer. Um, even that, there's so much intention and so much thought behind. This is what this kit is, and this is how it's going to be played, and this is how it's going to be in the music, and and be used for soloing, etc. And um, you know that it's just awesome to see all these different drummers and 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 all the drummers that aren't in the book um just how much thought goes into every drum kit okay now as a drummer who's played all his life and you still continue to play and then you have the unique experience of working in the studio working with all these other great people so you have a lot of ear training in this 
What's the difference, in your opinion, between a vintage drum kit and something that's new? You know, there's a lot of differences in terms of the sound of a lot of the, the you know, certain vintage kits. You know, the, the misnomer is that vintage is better. That's just a statement. And, and that's not true. It's vintage is sometimes better. But it depends on what your what style of music you're going to play the kit in, uh, what kind of kit, which vintage kit, which modern kit are you comparing it to. Uh, and, you know, the, because as you would imagine, the hardware has gotten so much better over the years. Um, and, of course, that helps get the drums set up where you want them and keep them set up that way and be reliable when you're playing them. And, of course, you know, bass drum pedal technology and all these different things with hardware have become tremendously improved. Uh, but there are some classic shells over the years that, you know, will always be just great sounding drums. And, um, you know, that's the thing about the drums is that it really depends on who hits the drum and what style of music it's in and what you're using it for. Has a, You know, you could have the same drummer play the same drum that another drummer plays and the drum will sound different. So it's really a very individual and very much a part of, you know, what style. It's funny you should mention that. I remember when I was teaching at Berkeley in Boston. Where I'm from. Yeah, right. I was in charge of the Performance Center recordings. And I remember we were doing something with the Saturday Night Live band. The drummer, I think, was Steve Jordan. There was a rental kit that was there and and whoever set it up was playing it and I'm thinking to myself boy that sounds pretty wimpy and then Steve Jordan comes in and he starts to play and he goes oh god this sounds awful and then he really started to play and the kit just lit up and the sound was great no matter what he thought you know we're going whoa listen to this so it's there's so much you know with the drummer and taught me a lesson that I never forgot you know, it's like with all instruments, it's not the instrument itself, it's the player that really makes a difference. Well, you're absolutely right. And that also applies to the technology side. Um, we talked about Audio One earlier, and um, I have a saying that I use all the time, applies to Audio One, applies to everything that I do. It's, it's, the, it's the archer and not the arrow. Mm. So many times someone will come to me and ask me about taking a project on, and they'll say, what do you think about using this brand and and they'll and they'll say because you know I used this brand on my last house or my last studio and it, and it didn't work so well and it'll be a great brand it'll be a brand that has tremendous capability and I'll be like well that's not that you had a bad experience and it wasn't because of the brand it was because of the archer and that's really the same thing but that's exactly right you know there's such an individuality to how successful something turns out, whether it's the playing of an instrument, the sound of a band, uh, a technology system, you know, authoring a book, you know, I mean, all of these things are very individual and, uh, and also very team oriented. Hmm. You know, you, you can't, you can't just have one person that is into it and, and is doing a good job and, and taking it to a high level. You know, you need a whole group of people who are uh, committed to that and who are experts in what they do. The uh, Drum Experience Center, what's that? That's my nonprofit museum that is where the kits that are in Crash are actually set up. 
And what I set out to do with my foundation, which is called Frangioni Foundation, is I set out to have a place where all the other foundations, many of which I've worked with, Irie Foundation, Musicians on Call, Make-A-Wish, Jason Taylor Foundation, etc., Guitars Over Guns. I've worked with all these foundations, and I've contributed in different ways. And um, I thought, Frangioni Foundation, the world doesn't necessarily need another foundation if there's going to be overlap. But what if Frangioni Foundation provided anything that had to do with drums and rhythm to all these other foundations? So a child has a -a make-a-wish dream, and it has to do with drums, or Irie Foundation wants to have one of their uh, curriculum items be healing drums, or Musicians on Call wants to do a drum master class. Why don't we be the resource for all of that so that these other foundations can get on with what they do, we can get on with what we do, and we meet at the places where we're doing the most good, and there's not redundancy. So that's the whole point of Frangioni Foundation, and Hit the Deck is our physical place where we bring kids, typically, to the museum, and it's part of our uh, our offering. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, last question, David. I think you're uniquely suited for this. What's the best piece of business advice that someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, absolutely, you're right. Um, I have had, you know, I'm on my 32nd year in business in the music and technology space, which has been quite a ride, as you know, because we've been on it together mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> the whole time. So you you know what I'm talking about. My first bit of advice would be you can't ever stop going for it. There's going to be a lot of setbacks and a lot of moments where you feel like the evidence is stacked up against uh, your pursuit and you just want to give up and 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 you know, throw in the towel. And what I tell people, and it's proven to be right every time based on what they've told me back, is that if you love what you do and you're committed to making a living at it, if you don't give up, you will make a living at it. And it's just that it sounds really simplistic. It's not easy, but it is a fact. Now, if you don't love what you do and you're chasing money or something else, that's a different story. But once you find what you love and you say, hey, I want to spend my life doing this and I want to make a living from it. There's no stopping you other than you. And the second bit of advice I would give to people is sometimes the best client that you take is the one you don't. (laughs) So don't be afraid to use your instinct and meet a client and walk away. It's this, there's this thing where people think when a client interviews you he's only interviewing you but the fact is you're interviewing each other if you're if you're taking a smart open-minded approach to it and yes of course the client needs to have confidence in you uh, or they won't hire you but i've met lots of clients that have confidence in me but if we actually worked together on something we would clash and it would be you know it just wouldn't work i I won't say lots because that's an exaggeration but i've met some and before I was wiser, I took the job. I come from a very, uh, you know, kind of lower class upbringing, if you will. So, like, we didn't have a whole lot. So, th- I almost had like my parents, like, God bless them, because they were the greatest inspiration you could ever imagine. 
but there was almost a depression era mindset where you just like take everything you can get if if you can do it right you know you're not you're not doing anything out of integrity but you're not really interviewing the client you're just taking the job because they need you and i learned through wisdom that that was the wrong approach that there's plenty of jobs out there and that you really have to make sure that there's a chemistry between you and the client and and sometimes it's not even just chemistry sometimes it's value system you know i mean i remember meeting a client and they're like oh i've had three other guys who all say they're the best come through here and um and you know they all screwed up my job and i now i'm told that you really are the best and da 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 and uh and then i researched it a little and he's like this guy's out there trying to sue the other people that he didn't like and that he didn't want to work on his job and like right off the bat you know what kind of person you're dealing with and and you can say okay well i don't want to get involved in that he's going to suck all my energy and my resources and he's never going to be happy because the three guys he had before me that he thinks are no good are actually all very good and um he's just going to keep going through people and so that's the you know kind of the long answer to you know sometimes the best project is the one you don't take you can find out more about david at davidjfrangioni.com that's davidjfrangioni all one word.com and you can find out about audio one at audio-one.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send in a questions at bobbyowinnerscircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnerscircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to your new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,